You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the Razor Safe system, you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. Hey guys and gals, welcome to the Oklahoma Outdoor Podcast, where you will be educated, entertained, and equipped to get more out of your outdoor experience. So hold on tight, because here we go. Welcome to the show, everybody. It's time to get this party started. My name is John Hutspeth, and this is the Oklahoma Outdoor Podcast. Welcome to the show. We're going to have a fantastic week, and you know why? This week, this very week, when this releases, it is my birthday week. Uh, turning 32, nice and old, nothing really special about it. I get no added benefits. Um, I honestly don't really care about my birthday, but my wife does, and so we're going to make it a big deal because she likes that. Um, and, you know, I go along with it. I'm not going to complain about it. But, uh, yeah, birthdays just really don't mean that much to me, especially at this point in my life. But but enough about that shenanigans. Let's get into the show today. I think I got a pretty good one lined up. Uh, this idea just kind of came to me randomly and decided to run with it, and it turned out even cooler than I originally thought. And so, uh, for those of you asking, I do have some guests lined up. We're going to get to those. Um, been having some scheduling conflicts. I do work a full-time job. I would love it if this podcast could pay all my bills, but just not there yet. Uh, in fact, I have zero sponsors, so <laughs> yeah, it's not paying any of my bills. Uh, so I got still got to work a job, so it just kind of makes it hard to schedule guests, but I am talking to a few people. We've got some stuff in the works, so you're you're not just going to only hear me all the time, I promise. Uh, my wife did give me an early birthday present, and it relates to the podcast. She got me a GoPro, and so I'm very excited about this because I've been wanting to do more video content. 
Uh, I don't think I'll ever do a video podcast where I just literally record myself talking with a video camera. I don't find that that interesting. I don't think you guys would find that uh, that interesting. Uh, But, you know, as we're kind of getting closer and closer to deer season, I'm excited to bring this thing along and kind of show you guys why I'm putting stuff, where I'm putting it, why I'm going to be hunting, where I'm going to be hunting. Uh, Pretty soon, if it'll ever quit raining, I'm going to get the boat back out on the water and uh, can bring you guys along my fishing adventures and just makes it nice and easy. And, you know, probably not going to be, you know, TV quality, but that's what just I don't know. I don't. I don't have enough time to put into it, but I think I can do enough to interest you guys and and teach you guys, and if anything, just bring you guys along in my adventure. And so, so yeah, uh, I've still had a few people, you know, reaching out to me through social media. I love it. I love hearing back from you guys. Um, please, please share this podcast with your friends, uh, your buddies, your coworkers. Anybody who might listen, uh, keep it growing. Uh, it's been awesome. I'm loving it, and I'm going to keep doing it for you guys. So I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I don't guess I have anything uh, pressing. Uh, I am going up to or out to the ranch this weekend, but unfortunately, it's it's definitely going to rain Friday night. There's like a 60% chance Saturday, like a 40% chance Sunday, and so. I'm going to go, I'm going to do a little work on my parents' house uh, at bare minimum. If the weather cooperates, I might do I might do some deer stuff. I don't think it's going to cooperate enough for that. Uh, I'm going to take my fishing pole in case I get a little time. I don't know if I'll get to do that. I don't know if I'll get to do anything outdoorsy, mostly because of the weather. Um, but I'm going to be out there and really crossing my fingers I can get at least something done. Uh, I went up there last Saturday just for the day. I uh, found one shed. I did a little back dragging on one of our food plots to, to straighten out some ruts so that we can hopefully get it planted for a spring plot. Uh, it keeps getting later, but we just we just haven't had the weather to get it worked and get stuff in the ground. So I don't know if the spring plots are going to work out or not. I'm probably going to go ahead and plant them and just see what happens. But I don't have a uh, I don't have a lot of hopes of them being too great this fall, or I'm sorry, this summer, but still worth a shot. I got the seed, so I might as well try and throw it out there. I did get to do some exploring. Uh, I, like I've mentioned a few times, we have this big, deep draw, I call it a canyon thing, and uh, I've I've hunted it, but I've never really dove into it and tried to just you know walk around and figure it all out. Um, I've kind of done that just to keep the pressure out, but... I'm hunting enough back there now that I think it's worth it to go in, you know, one time and really just dig deep and try to figure it out and figure out how the deer are using it. And so I basically walked from the top down to the bottom, back up in a different spot, and then went to the other end, walked all the way down, all the way back up. I uh, did put a few uh, videos on my story of that on Instagram. Uh, I found one shed out in the food plot, one tiny little forkhorn. And that is actually my first shed of the year. Uh, like I said, my, my brother's been taking his kids around, you know, just trying to get them out of the house. And they found several, you know, a lot of the low-hanging fruit, as you would say, like out in fields and pastures and around feeders and stuff. So this was actually my very first shed of the year. And so who knows, maybe I'll get out and find a few more. Um, but, yeah, the main reason I'm going is to work on my parents' house. And um, so, yeah, it's going to be a good weekend. And I think that's going to wrap up this intro. Sorry for all the rambling, but we're going to get into it. And this week, I'm going to basically tell some stories and basically try to teach you guys from the mistakes that I've made over the years. So I'm going to tell you the story, what happened, what went wrong, 
maybe something I could have done to to prevent whatever happened. And uh, yeah, just have a good old time. So it's going to be kind of a, a mix of entertaining and education. So hope you guys are prepared. I got uh, several instances picked out in my head. Uh, some of them are, well, a lot of them are deer hunting, uh, some hog hunting, turkey hunting stuff. And so basically I'm just going to kind of start off see where we get to time-wise, and just go till I fill up a podcast. And so I hope you guys are ready, because uh, we're about to dive off the deep end, and here we go. So I figured I'd start this off with an easy one, nice little layup, and this one has to do with hog hunting. And so this story takes place, I'm pretty sure this was spring break my senior year when this happened. I Right after Christmas, I had bought my first rifle ever, about a 22-250 that I talked about on the last podcast, still have it to this day, still an awesome gun. And it was actually my very first rifle. Like all the hunting I'd done before that, I'd either borrowed my dad's rifle, borrowed an uncle's rifle. I'd actually never had one of my own. And so I turned 18, I bought this 22-250, and I would take it up to my grandpa's land and just wreak havoc with it. It was it was the absolute perfect size to just, you know, fool around, shoot coons and possums and hogs and all that good stuff. And so, uh, but this particular night, uh, every spring, my grandpa and his farmhands, they would plant their corn. And whenever they planted the corn, his farm was right on the Red River, it would just get destroyed by hogs. And so basically... He, he almost counted on me every spring break. I would go up there and just patrol all night long. And so this particular uh, night, he'd let me borrow his Kubota so I could drive around in the fields and, you know, not tear it up or anything. Had my 22-250, and he had gotten an AR-15. And, like, at this time, this is before, you know, everybody and their cousin had an AR-15. It was, like, kind of a big deal to have this thing. And so, you know, this is – I didn't have night vision or thermal or anything. This is a good old spotlight, how I did most of my hog hunting growing up. And I had a letter from uh, him and the game warden that let me, you know, spotlight at night we had permission everything was taken care of this was like this was a big deal this was planned out and so basically i'd go up there and i'd just patrol as late as i possibly could and then do it all over again the next night and so this is uh i want i think this is the first night and i'm driving along and you know between fields who would have pastures and there'd be cows and so i had to you know open and close gates and i was by myself and well, I'm driving along, and, and I finally see this big old hog, and he was probably 80 yards away, I'm guessing. Again, this is at night, and so uh, this Kubota had a mirror coming off the driver's side, and I had lowered it to where I could use it as a shooting rest, so I would hold the spotlight with my left hand and put my rifle on that mirror to steady and pull the trigger. Hog goes down. I'm like, sweet, and I could tell it was pretty good size, and you know, it was out there by itself. So I drive up, and I park about 20 yards away, and I could see it kind of kicking. And I had this, you know, I had my the AR-15 with me. It wasn't mine, it was his, but I had the AR-15 with me. And I decided it would be so cool if I finished this thing off with the AR. And so I put my rifle down, pick the AR up, step out again. I parked the rig about 20 yards away with the headlights shining on it. And I just go lollygagging up to this hog. And at this point, I had probably only killed five or six in my life. Um, I didn't kill my first one until I was 15, 16 maybe. And, uh, you know, I'd killed a couple over the years, but I just, I didn't, I wasn't that experienced. Uh, so anyway, I go walking up to this hog and again, you know, I think he's down, he's kicking a little bit, but I'm not worried about it. Out of nowhere, this thing is on its feet and coming at me. <laughs> and so, Thank goodness I had that AR. I light into it and pop it, and it goes down. You know, it didn't have a lot of life in it, but it had that little rush. And so, my first tip, my school of hard knocks tip, is 
Do not walk up to a hog unless it is no longer moving. Do not quit shooting until it is no longer moving. Don't worry about I know ammo's expensive, but it's not worth your life or your leg or a limb of any kind. Uh, it's just not worth it, you know. Now that I have a lot more experience, I can tell if it's just reflexes or if the hog's still alive and, you know, I'd feel a little more comfortable with it. But especially if you're starting out, especially if you're by yourself, do not start, stop shooting until that hog is absolutely 100% dead. And so that was a quick, easy one kind of get started. Um, we're going to get a little bit more advanced after this, but that one's a very important one, especially in the state of Oklahoma where we have hogs all over the place. So I wanted to be sure to get that point across. All right, story number two. This one is a whitetail story, and this is the story of how I learned basically about scent control and that deer really do smell and use their nose like people say they do. So growing up, you know, I, I didn't really have a hunting mentor. Most of my deer hunting knowledge came from watching television shows where the camera would come on, there'd be some guy sitting on the edge of an opening, a giant buck would walk out and he'd shoot it. And, you know, that's basically all it would show. It never told the story or anything. It would just kind of show the highlights. And so I believe I was 20 years old when this story took place. And uh, I had this little spot set up on my grandpa's place. And uh, it was basically, there was a little pond. And then there was about a three-acre opening. And then it was timber basically all the way around it. And, uh, yeah, I was like, oh, perfect, like, the deer are obviously in the woods, and they're obviously going to come out in this big, giant opening because that's what the deer do on TV. I only had one stand because that's all I could afford. Even though he had a big place, I had one stand, and that's basically the only spot I would hunt because I had, I kind of had a feeder there. I had a homemade feeder that one of my uh, buddy's dads had helped me weld together, and uh, I was in college at this time, so I would fill it, you know, right before I left for college, and I'd put it to go off once a day for like three seconds, and I would leave, you know, for school in basically August, not come home till Thanksgiving, and of course, you know, it ran out of corn by that time, but I would still hunt it, and then before I left to go back to school, you know, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, I would refill it, and so usually when I got home for Christmas, it actually still had something in it. Um, and so that was what this, what happened in this story. So I'd come home for Christmas break. Uh, you know, I'd hunted that spot a couple times over Thanksgiving, but it was pretty much untouched. And then obviously I had not hunted at all in basically a month from Thanksgiving to Christmas, go up there. And, uh, I would always get there the night before I'd sleep in the truck. Actually, I think at this point, my great uncle had put an old camper up there and let me sleep in it. So slept in this old camp camper. Uh, you know, I'd built a fire the night before, uh, I was wearing, I would wear, always wear my camo because I didn't have anything else warm. So I'd wear my camo around the fire. I wore it on the way up there. I ate in it. Um, you know, I'd started reading in these magazines and in online forums that you had to do all this scent control stuff, but I just didn't think it was really worth it. I was like, you know, stuff, the guys on TVs don't do that, even though they probably did, but you know, I didn't know it at the time. So I'd wake up, I'd drive way too close because I was always scared to walk in in the dark because of all the hogs. Uh, I didn't have a pistol or anything at this time. I just had my bow. And uh, I would walk right through the middle of this opening within probably 20 yards of my feeder, climb up into my stand and just sit. And uh, I still remember I was sitting in my stand. I was facing west and there was a southeast wind just like there almost always is. And so basically my scent was blowing right out into this field. 
and not right at the feeder, but it, you know, kind of catty corner to the feeder. And I remember think like I specifically remember thinking like, oh, my wind's not great, but it, it'll probably be okay. Like it's not straight at the feeder. So I'm sitting there. Sun comes up, feeder goes off, and a uh, little while later, I see this doe and her fawn coming out from the east and uh they're walking across and i i see them hit my scent trail and she perks up and she just looks straight at me like straight up into my stand uh i i always cut too many branches away because i was afraid of not having a shot so i'd clear every possible branch and then of course you know the leaves would fall off and it'd be even more bare and i, I had like a 12 foot ladder stand so i wasn't even that high and uh but anyway she so she looks straight at me she goes into the timber works more downwind, and then tries to come out again. Again, looks straight up at me, gets, goes back into the timber, tries to come out a third time. Like, she wants that corn. It's late. Nobody's been there forever, but, like, she 100% knows that I'm there. And so I watch her and this fawn take off, never seeing them again. And uh, and I, I was still bow killless at this point. Like, I'd, I hunted a lot, but usually, you know, rifle season would come along, and I'd put the bow away. And, like, you know, most of the time I was just hunting Thanksgiving break and Christmas break. So whenever I was home for Thanksgiving, it was always rifle season. So I'd kind of give up on the bow. And then when I got home for Christmas, I'd throw some desperation shots out there. Um, but anyway, so, like, that's when it kind of hit me. It's like, all right, I got to do something different. This whole no scent control thing is obviously not working. Like these deer are on to me. So I drove to town, went to Walmart, and I bought washcloths and some cover scent or no scent, scent away, whatever you want to call it. Came back to the camper, stripped down completely, gave myself a uh, washcloth bath or a baby wipe bath. And then I sprayed down every single layer of my clothes, starting with my underwear, base layers, uh, normal layers, coat, coveralls, everything. Sprayed them completely down. And then I tried to figure out how I could get into this downwind. And so basically, instead of walking around the, the north side of the pond and coming straight through the field, I walked around the south side of the pond, came up to the corner, and I just decided I would sit on... Actually, there's a little mound of dirt. Uh, and so I sat on that little mound of dirt, so that kind of got me up out of the grass. Um, and so I'm sitting there, and I can't remember if the feeder went off. Yeah, I guess the feeder did go off in the evening. And uh, I look to my left, and I see this same doe and fawn. And I watch her come up, and she I can see her look at, look at the stand. And again, I'm actually downwind at this point. And this doe and fawn walk within 10 yards of me. And, I mean, they walk right in front of me. The doe starts eating. The fawn's, like, running around, you know, doing little fawn things, playing tag with itself. And, you know, at this point, I didn't I didn't even consider shooting a doe. I thought you were, you know, lame if you shot a doe. You had to be a cool kid and shoot a buck. So I'm just sitting there watching. And that doe fed there for 10, 15 minutes and then took her little fawn, and they walked away like nothing ever happened. I got way closer uh, and, like, all I had done was basically take care of my scent and sat down wind. That's the only thing that was different. And so that's when it really hit me that there is something to this scent control stuff. And it completely changed the way I hunted from then on. I was way more careful about my clothes. I was way more careful about how I acted before I went in. I stopped wearing my camo, you know, out around the public in the store and stuff. And, and I was like, you know, if you're a pure rifle hunter and you're going to be a hundred yards away, you know, it's probably not 
quite as important, especially if you're going to be in an enclosed blind. But if you're a bow hunter and you're trying to get within, you know, 30, 20, 10 yards of an animal, 20 yards, you know, for a good shot, scent control is extremely important. And not necessarily scent control, but at least playing the wind. You know, where do you expect that deer to be? Where do you expect them to come from? And where can you be so that your wind never blows across their nose? And so that's, I mean, everything I do now, every setup I have, I think about the wind. And not just necessarily like where I'm going to hunt, where the wind is, but like I set stands up for specific winds now. You know, I this stand, I know I'll only hunt it on a north wind. This stand, I know I'll only hunt it on a south wind. Those are basically the two winds we get here. You know, every once in a blue moon, you'll get a west wind as like a, a weather pattern is coming in and out. Uh, but typically it's a south or southeast or straight north. And so always, always, always pay attention to the wind and pay attention to your scent control. My next uh, hard knock lesson is kind of on the same trail. It is about overusing scent products or scent elimination products. And uh, this story, I'm going to be talking about Ozonics. That's the one I have. And and before I go too far, I want to say I still use it. I just use it differently than what I did. So I bought this unit. I still I still have the, I think it's like the HR200. It's like two or three models old now. Um, but I think it still works great, and I think it does plenty. Um, but anyway, I bought this thing, and the first year I used it, it was freaking awesome. I mean, I would have deer downwind to me. They just like on TV, you know, they'd kind of stick their nose up in the air and then they'd come on. Uh, you know, they could like it. Nothing can be completely odorless. I really believe that. I know they say that this stuff attacks odor and kills the molecules and all that stuff. But I mean, just like in the commercial, like watch deer, like they smell something. They may not know what it is, but they smell something. And uh, so, yeah, the first year I used it, I had great success. Um, you know, I'd already kind of learned my scent lesson sorry my dog just ran into my door but yeah i had learned my scent control lesson i had uh you know had some success i started killing some deer with my bow and i got this ozonics and it helped me out but i, I basically i think i got to the point where i was overusing it and just like anything else like deer learned to associate it with human presence and this really came to fruition it was probably the third or fourth year i was using my ozonics unit and, you know, I had the dry wash bag. I was running all my clothes in there. I'd carry it with me to the stand. I'd hang it above my head and have it running in the tree. And there was this one super old buck I was hunting. He, I had, I had six years worth of pictures of him. And I know he wasn't a year, uh, a yearling when I first got his picture. So I estimated him at around eight years old. And I'd been hunting this deer for, Oh, really three years. He wasn't a giant deer, um, but he just, he was always there. He was super old, super smart, and it kind of just became a, my challenge. And it took me, uh, like, it really took me two years. I hunted him hard for two years and finally killed him in like January, um, after t- a two year battle. But this buck y'all was so smart that he basically figured out that whatever, that ozone smell or whatever it put off, he associated that with my presence because I think I was overusing it. Like I said, I was wearing it on all my clothes. I I would run it in my truck sometimes, um, run it in the tree, and I always had it with me. And y'all, this deer got to the point, I had a text cam on this uh, feeder that I was hunting him over. 
this deer got to the point where he like he was showing up every evening in daylight every single evening i would go in there to hunt and he'd bust me i'd hear him blow and it'd always be in the weird like sometimes it was to the left sometimes it was to the right uh but i knew it was him because i wouldn't see him that night but like he was so smart that the next evening i'd get another picture of him in daylight like he he had me pegged and like i said i finally ended up killing this deer it was uh, either late December or early January, and the way I got him killed, I don't know how, but I somehow figured out that this Ozonics thing obviously wasn't working. You know, he was getting me somehow. And so, uh, you know, he was coming in nice and regular. The weather was going to be right. And so instead of using my Ozonics, I washed my clothes with like a scent-free soap. I bought a cheap little cover scent thing from Walmart, just like I did, you know, way back when I was 20. Sprayed my clothes down, sprayed my boots down. And I left the Ozonics at home. I didn't take it with me. Didn't have it in the tree. Walked in the same way I'd been walking in. You know, I had a real good access route. I had a pretty good idea of where he was bedding. And that night he came in. I killed him. And so, like I said, I like I like I said, I still use Ozonics to this day. And I think it's good, especially if you don't hunt as much as I was hunting at that time. You know, if you're kind of a weekend warrior or every other weekend, like I think you can use it more. Um, but for me, my, my scent routine now is that I still run the dry wash bag. So I, I run my clothes with the Ozonics and it's a great way to, you know, so you don't have to wash them all the time, run the Ozonics. And then unless the wind is like really bad, I usually don't take it to the tree with me. I'll dry wash my clothes. I'll spray my boots down and I just hunt the wind now. Like I don't try to push it. Um, I did the, the second buck that I killed this year, I did take the Ozonics with me because it was, it was like January 8th. I knew it was the last day or two I was going to get to hunt. And so I was willing to push it a little more. Uh, the wind, the wind was pretty good, but like I said, you know, it it just wasn't perfect. So I took the Ozonics with me, but I had never, ever ran the Ozonics out of that stand and I ended up killing a mature buck out of it. Um, and you know, the buck tried to get down, you know, he went downwind of where I was. He didn't get completely downwind, but he got pretty close. And so I do think the Ozonics in that instance saved me. I've talked about that on the podcast. I've told that story already. Um, so it's still, you know, and it doesn't have to be Ozonics, you know, scent crusher, all, but any of the ozone companies, I do think you can overuse them. And so just a school hard knocks lesson there. Use them, but use them wisely, and always, always play that wind, because when it comes down to it, I mean, like, humans cannot comprehend how good a whitetail's nose is. They just can't. Uh, you know, I truly believe, and there's a lot of people out there that are starting, like, I believe deer can smell a scent and tell you how long it's been there. You know, I think those deer know whether you walked in 30 minutes ago or whether you walked in three hours ago or three days ago. You know, I think the deer can tell by just how much odor is there. And so, yeah, watch the wind, play the wind, and always keep that wind in your favor. Let's switch over to uh, turkey mode real quick. And I kind of mentioned this one during my turkey episode a few weeks ago when I told my story. Um, but if possible, you got to really watch out for natural barriers that will make toms hang up when you're calling them in. Uh, or unnatural, you know, a fence. Like, that's the one that always gets me, the darn fence. 
It could be a creek. It could be a little waterway, you know, like a stream. It could be a drainage ditch. It could be a, even a downed log. Like turkeys just look for excuses to hang up because if you think about it, you know, the reason turkeys are so loud and obnoxious is because it's made for them to stay there and the hens to come to them. So when you are trying to be a hen and get that tom to come to you, they are just looking for an excuse to stop and let nature do what nature does and for that hen to come to him. And so, you know, like I said, if if possible, just sit yourself in a spot to where there's no natural or unnatural obstructions. You know, if you hear them gobbling, look around real quick, real quick before you just sit down, you know, look for something. Can you, can you move, you know, across the creek real quick before you start calling again? Um, you know, can you shift over further away from the fence? Can you climb the fence or, you know, go through a gate to get on the same side of the fence as that Tom, uh, whatever you got to do, just look for those barriers, those things that they can hang up on and try to mitigate it while you can before that Tom gets in close to you. Alright, we're going to jump back into the deer woods for this next one. And this one can be a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people, including myself. But this one is, don't waste your entire season chasing a buck that you got one or two pictures of during the summer. It's just probably not going to work out. That's just kind of the way deer work. They usually have a summer pattern and a fall pattern. And I got to really watch this come alive with this property that I've been hunting the last six or seven years. Because it was kind of long and skinny. And just kind of the way it worked out, uh, at the north end, it was a little rougher ground, you know, just shallower soil, more rocky and stuff. But the deer loved to be up there in the summertime because it had a lot of summer vegetation, you know, a lot of what most people would consider weeds, you know, the wildflowers, the ragweed, that type of stuff. And then as it cooled off and they shed their velvet and stuff, they would almost always move south where, you know, there's more vegetation more acorns and that's just kind of the way it would work and the one i really got to see it there was one summer that uh i ran a couple protein feeders and i had one up at the north end of the property the far north end that i'm talking about and i did this for two or three years um not running protein but i just you know this was always like the first feeder i'd start getting pictures at and every year there would be probably five to seven like mature bucks i'm talking four years and older and you know i'd just be licking my chops i'm like all right and i'd you know have this plan and i'd be setting up and usually all but maybe one of those bucks would go somewhere else when the season rolled around now fortunately for me a lot of them would come south and i'd still get to hunt them i'd be hunting them in a different spot but I still get to hunt those deer. But like I said, I mean, for several years, I got to watch this this transition happen of these deer hanging out up north. Or, you know, it's obviously not always a north to south pattern. It can be different. just varies on terrain. But in my instance, they would always be up north, and then they'd move south. Um, and, you know, not all of them would. Some of them would go east, west, north, whatever. But I just, like I said, you know, like you got to really be careful because I've had, you know, on other properties, I've had that same thing where I get this really nice deer and I get, you know, a couple pictures of them over the summer and like, that's the one I want. That's the one I'm watching. And then hunting season comes around and he's just nowhere to be seen. Or he might come around like once or twice during the rut. And that was another common thing I saw. And and for a lot of people, that kind of gets their hopes back up. They're like, oh, he's back. But more than likely, he's just kind of quickly returning to that summer pattern to look for a hot doe. And then he's out of there right away. And so 
I just don't want people to waste their entire season and pass up other, you know, really good deer that they would normally be happy with because they have, you know, this handful of pictures from the summer of this velvet giant, and that's the one that they are hanging their entire season on. And so, like I said, I, I would love to do it too, but unfortunately, especially if you're hunting a smaller property, you know, if you're hunting... 300 acres and less um you know especially if you're down in like the 100 or 50 acre range there's just a very slim chance that that buck that hung around that summer is still going to be there in the fall it's just a hard truth of the matter and so like i said don't get your hopes up off those summer trail cam photos i love getting them they're cool you know i love getting trail cam photos but it's just not worth putting your whole season on that picture from you know august 15th this next one I got for you guys can apply to pretty much any outdoor activity, be it hunting or fishing, and that is to check your weapon regularly, even throughout the season. Um, I was deer hunting one time. It was rifle season, and you know I, I had hunted a lot. I was hunting most mornings and evenings. You know I'd work in between, uh, but it just kind of worked out. I was getting to hunt a lot, so I was carrying. You know, basically for almost two weeks. You know, I was I had my rifle in and out of the truck. I'd even take it with me on the tractor sometimes. Um, and so I was just carrying my rifle around around a lot. And it got to where it was either the last day or the second to last day of rifle season. I climb up into my stand. I was hunting a stand I hadn't been hunting that week. Um, I had checked a camera and got a picture of a nice buck. And so I went in there for the kill. And I climb up into my stand. I was sitting in a tree stand. And I kind of get situated. And I had my rifle sitting in my lap. And I looked down. And the screw from my back scope ring was gone it was it was completely gone i guess it rattled out and uh i got to like checking and looking at things and i could see that my scope had shifted back i could see marks on the tube where my scope had shifted back and twisted a little bit and so basically my confidence in that rifle went from a hundred percent to zero real fast and you know most likely that screw had slowly been working its way out all week long uh, just with all the moving around and shifting and I just never took the time to check it you know I never gave my weapon a once over um, and not to necessarily say like you know you're a bad hunter if you're not checking the screws on your scope rings every single hunt but I knew that I'd been using that weapon a lot and I knew I'd been carrying it around you know I hadn't shot it all week um, you know if I would have shot it halfway through the week or, or you know two weeks whatever one week in i probably would have noticed that it shifted or moved or something i could have figured something out but i waited till i was in the stand on the last or second to last day of the season and all of a sudden i got a rifle in my lap that's no good and i've had stuff with my bow uh like uh, I, I was using a peep sight that had the rubber tubes like when you pulled back the rubber tube would align your peep up uh, i've had that break on me out in the field uh what else uh, I've, ha I've had my shotgun jam on me plenty of times because, you know, I'd pulled it out of the closet to go dove hunting or duck hunting or whatever, and it wasn't clean and it was jamming a whole lot. Um, so yeah, like I said, this can go for even fishing, you know, check your line. Is your line getting thin or bare? Uh, do you have enough line on your reel? I had that happen to me one time. I, I, I'd put my, uh, fishing stuff up for the winter, didn't pull it out. And, you know, I, the last time I went, I remembered that my line was getting kind of short. Next spring, I got out there to the pond, first cast, and hit the end of that line. 
And, uh, I mean, I, I kept fishing, but I had to really watch my cast and I couldn't cast as far as I wanted to because I didn't have enough line on my reel. So no matter what you're into, always, always check your equipment and keep up with it. And especially if you hunt a whole lot, you know, like a deer season that's four months long, shoot your bow, shoot your rifle, your muzzleloader, whatever it is, shoot those things throughout the season. One, you should be practicing anyway, but two, just shoot it a couple times just to make sure it's in good working to order. So always always check your equipment so when i was coming up with this list the other day i was going through and and i really wanted to try to get you know stuff from all over the map not just deer or fish or whatever and uh i was trying to come up with one for duck hunting and like i've said i used i used to do a bunch of duck hunting back in high school and early college years and just as i got more into deer hunting duck hunting kind of took a back seat because usually if it was a a nice cold morning that i had off i was going to be deer hunting um, but this last year I, I was kind of getting back into it. And anyway, I was trying to come up with something for duck hunting. And, and the, the first thing that came to my mind is find a nice safe way to test your waders before you go walking off into ice cold water for the first time of the year, because I have definitely done that before. Um, we had a, a slough at our, our place. I call it, we called it the slough and it was about 20 acres. And, but the whole thing, it never got deeper than about seven feet. And usually, you know, most of the places you could walk, you know, in chest waders, but it'd be, you know, it'd be right at the top of those waders, but you could get by what, by with it. And it was nice, smooth sailing. But uh, one year, uh, you know, like I said, I'd been duck hunting, or I'm sorry, I'd been deer hunting, but I shot my uh, my buck, and a uh, nice cool morning, my family was in, and that's one thing my siblings and I like to do, to do together when we're all up there is go duck hunting, and so we, we got out there bright and early, and it was the first time I'd worn my waders since the previous year, and I get out there setting up decoys, and basically like my, the chest pocket on my waders uh, one of the seams had I busted or done something, and I had a, late, a leak basically at my belly button. <laughs> and uh, so cold, icy water rushed all the way down my waist, all the way down my legs, and it was not enjoyable. <laughs> and so if you're a big waterfowl, or I don't know, if you're a big waterfowl, you're probably getting a new pair every year because you're wearing them out. If you're a, like, somewhat waterfowler, this, this is probably more for you. Make sure you check those waders before you get out there in that cold water. So one of my hardest knocks in the School of Hard Knocks came when I moved to Idaho when I went to college and started doing some elk hunting and a little bit of mule deer hunting. And one thing I, well, I wouldn't say I quickly learned, but I learned the hard way was you are going to have to get off the beaten path if you're going to be successful, especially in a, you know, public land DIY type setting. If you decide to go out west, which everybody should, and do some hunting, you know, out in the mountains and stuff, it is. I just can't express how different it is than hunting private land Oklahoma whitetails. Like you, I thought I was going to be so prepared because I'd done all this deer hunting and and you know I was real into it and blah 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 and and you know I went out there before podcasts were a thing and you know that YouTube was kind of a thing, but you do, you just you didn't have near as much content as you have out there nowadays. You know, helping people out. Uh, so I went out there pretty much cold turkey. And, you know, I'd get out there and 
I knew I couldn't just sit in one place and, you know, I, so, but, but I'd basically stick to logging roads or well-marked trails. And, and part of it was because I wasn't comfortable enough, uh, you know, just the whole public land thing in general, like trying to figure out where I could go and couldn't go. And, uh, and it wasn't until really about three years in and I started, you know, hunting with my good buddy Jasper and, uh, Man, we heard this bugle up over a ridge, and uh, I remember thinking, like, oh, that's cool. Like, it's cool to hear that bugle. And he just looked at me. He's like, all right, let's go. And I looked at him like, you talking about going up that mountain? And he's like, yeah. And I, I, like, I basically said, like, you can't do that. And he's like, well, that's where the bull is. And uh, so I kind of fell in line behind him, and he was more hunting. I was more like along for the well, you know. I was technically hunting, but I'm just trying to say the analogy. Like I just put my head down. And I was like, "There is absolutely no way we're getting this done." But uh, and you know, I was not in super good shape. Uh, I was yeah, I was young. <laughs> I had that going for me, but I, not like I'd been working out for this purpose. Um, but man, like you can do that stuff easier than you think so much of it is mental so much even on this last trip i was probably in the worst shape i'd ever been in for an elk hunt but i still did pretty good and i still kept up with the other fellas because i had done it more than they had i had climbed more mountains than they had you know a lot of my friends from down here um and so but yeah like like i say you just you're probably gonna have to be uncomfortable in where you're walking to you're either gonna have to go down something very steep or up something very steep and probably both uh because those animals just it's it's nothing to them like it is not uh, it does not take a lot of effort for an elk to go up a mountain or down a mountain i have seen those things in a matter of minutes run down a mountain and up the next one to where they're like they're back level with me but one mountain over and i'm talking a couple minutes and so if you're going to be successful, you're going to have to be willing to do that also. Not that it's going to take a couple minutes. It's going to take you longer. But just get just to get in the game, you're going to have to go to where those animals are at. And so if you do decide to go out west, one, start exercising now. Even if it's next year, start exercising now. Because the better shape you're in, the better you're going to be at it. Uh, but just... Start preparing yourself mentally too, because like I said, like when I got there, I was mentally beat because I just, I just, I literally, you know, I'd never been in the mountains before. I didn't know you could just go up a mountain. Uh, and you know, to me, I pictured every mountain, you know, the top of every mountain was in the clouds and super rocky and you had to have carabiners and ropes and stuff to get over it. And it's just kind of, it's not that way. Obviously it is that way in some places, but most mountains, and you're usually not going to top out, you know, every once in a while you will, but a lot of times you're going to go through a saddle or over a ridge or something like that. But, but like I said, just mentally prepare yourself that you're going to have to push yourself if you're going to be successful when you go out west. Another thing I've learned over the years is the importance of a quality broadhead. And I've shot quite a few hogs with my bow, and I love using hogs as an example because they have big, thick hides. 
Um, and I've shot hogs with cheap broadheads, and I've shot them with nice broadheads, and there is a huge difference. Uh, I've told the story, I think I've told it twice, about I shot a, this big hog with a, a super cheap, expandable broadhead that a, a buddy of mine had given me like in high school or something, and it didn't even penetrate the skin, and I watched the arrow basically bounce off this thing, like the tip stuck in it for a second, and then it fell out, and the hog didn't even run away, like it sat there. And then I pulled out a good arrow and broadhead and shot it and killed it. Um, but, uh, you know, another instance, I, I uh, had some hogs around a feeder pin and a couple of them got in the pin. And I ended up shooting, I shot five hogs uh, out of this group with my bow because a couple of them got trapped in the pin. And anyway, uh, but I was getting complete, I, I just had deer, ant, uh, deer arrows, what I call deer arrows, like my good arrows with my good broadheads. Uh, normally I carry a couple hog arrows and that's in quotes like, you know, either older arrows or, you know, like a broadhead that I've already shot something with, like it's still a good head, but it's already been, you know, it's already killed something and I just don't feel good. Like, you know, using it on a deer, I'll use that on a hog and just cause I don't care about hogs that much. Let's be honest. Nobody does. Um, but anyway, so like I said, I've, I've shot hogs with good heads and I've shot them with bad heads. And there's a huge difference, and and especially if you're going to be, you know, deer hunting, elk hunting, whatever, like something that you're going to care about, um, use a good broadhead. And I'm not here to get into the whole mechanical versus fixed. I use both, um, so I'm not going to say one's better than the other, but no matter what you pick, just use a good, high-quality one uh, when you're out there hunting because... Like I said, you can talk about how fancy your bow is. You can talk about how heavy or light your arrows is and all this and that. But like what it really comes down to, that broadhead is what actually does the damage and what actually kills the animal. And so you want to make sure you're using something that is quality made, sharp, really, really sharp. You know, that goes a long way with how sharp it is. Um, and I, you know, some people do, I tend to not use the same broadhead twice on deer. Like I said, you know, a lot of times they're still good. A lot of times they're still sharp. Uh, I know some people resharpen and, and use them again, but typically what I do is I basically just take that head or arrow and I switch it from a deer arrow to a hog arrow. Cause I'm still going to use it. You know, I still want to kill the hog. I don't, you know, I'm not trying to just scare it away. Like I want to kill it. Um, but I don't care as much if that hog gets away as I do that deer. And so use a good quality broadhead when you're out there hunting. Okay, so this is probably going to be the last one for this episode, and I saved the best for last, or maybe what I would consider the most important. And I want to talk about access routes, access routes to your stand and how important they are. So I learned this lesson several years back. Um, I had this one stand that I'd set up. It was at the bottom of a ridge, uh, and basically there was a, a, a pinch point between this ridge and a fairly big creek. It was a wet weather creek. You know, it didn't always have water in it, but, but it was deep and had real rocky ledges, and just deer kind of preferred to not cross it if they didn't have to. And so there was this nice, probably like 70-yard wide gap where this the, where this finger ridge came down, and then it basically pointed at the creek. And it was just an awesome funnel. Deer would funnel in between these two, you know, land features. Um, and I had cameras set up there. I was running cameras, and I had to stand there. And I'd get all these pictures of, of really nice bucks and lots of does. I mean, it was just a fantastic pinch point. Um, but I'd go in there and hunt. And I would never see anything. 
you know, I might see a doe, almost never saw bucks. And I was getting pictures of these, you know, deer, but when I'd go in there to hunt, I wouldn't see them. And, uh, and it just so happened that that year I found out about, uh, you know, Dan Infault and the hunting beast and, and you know, Dan's style of hunting and, and buck beds and, and I really took it to heart and I, I'm really not a, I would not consider myself a beast hunter. I use some of the tactics and I, but I learned a ton from him. I learned a ton from the hunting beast guys about how deer bed, where they bed. And so that spring, you know, I, I would go, I always go and do some, you know, scouting walks in the spring and I was walking around this area because it just didn't make sense why I wasn't seeing these deer. And I remember getting to this spot and thinking, like, this is exactly what these guys are describing. Like, this is where I think these bucks are bedding. And it made sense. You know, I'd seen deer traveling in and out of this little area. And uh, and I saw an opening about, you know, 15, 20 yards up ahead. And so I walk out and I pop into this opening and I look down and I realize that I am standing on the trail that I used to access the stand that I'd been hunting for probably two, two or three years at this point. Um, I've been hunting the stand, had zero success out of it. Um, you know, I was getting all these pictures, so I kept hunting it. I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And basically I was walking right through or right next to the deer's bedding area every time I hunted that stand. And so I actually got on Google Earth and kind of zoomed out, you know, kind of got at the 10,000 foot view. And I was like, what can I do different? So, you know, like I said, I kind of had figured out where I thought the deer were bedding. And when I zoomed out and kind of took in the whole picture, I basically figured out that deer were working their way around this point. And, you know, that creek was just kind of a good natural barrier. They usually didn't go on the south side of the creek. They, they tended to stay on the north side and there was multiple, basically, you know, they'd come out of one little draw and they could go up into a different, into another one, one in the center, and they could come around that, go around that point and go up to a different one. And so all I did, uh, I moved my, st my stand was kind of on the north side of the little opening. I moved it probably 30 yards to the south side. And on the south side of the creek, there was an old, I don't know, wagon road, some kind of old road that, you know, it was kind of cleared out, kind of not. Took the brush hog down there uh, in the spring, kind of mowed it to where I could walk down it and get down it. And the only thing, like I said, I moved the stand maybe 30 yards, you know, not enough to make a huge change, but just enough because instead of accessing it from the north, I wanted to access it from the south. So I cleared and so instead of driving around the north and parking up there and walking down this ridge and climbing into a stand i would drive all the way around to the fence line come down the fence line park to the south walk down my little trail walk across the creek i'd wear rubber boots walk across the creek and climb straight into my stand after i crossed the creek and i would only hunt it on a north wind so i was accessing from the south only hunting it from a north wind and y'all this turned into one of the best stands I had on that entire property. Uh, I think I beat my record there. I think I saw 14 deer at once at one point. Like, uh, they were just, uh, like, I, I, there was tons of big white oak trees. Like I said, it was a good access pinch point. Like, deer just wanted to be in this area. I just had to figure out how to hunt it. And when I took a, a you know, a bigger look at it, 
like I said, really, you know, technically, yes, I did move the stand, but I almost don't even count that because I didn't move it very far. I basically just moved it closer to the creek so that I could cross the creek and climb up into the stand. The only major change I made was my access route, and I went from 0% success to, I mean, I would at least see a deer basically any time. And I've probably seen more mature bucks out of that tree stand than any other tree stand I had on the property. Uh, oddly enough, I only killed one out of it. Um, one buck I was after, he had broken off like his whole right side, so I passed him. Uh, another deer, another deer I couldn't get to stop one time, but I had a lot of encounters. I just, oddly enough, I only killed one buck out of it, but that's not the point. The point is access, guys. It is super important. And I said earlier, you know, I talked about how, you know, I plan my stands with one uh, wind direction in mind. And that wind direction has to do with my access, too. And so if I find a spot, I'm basically looking at access first, and then I decide what wind I'm going to hunt it on. And so if I can only get to a stand from the south, I'm only going to hunt it on north winds. And I'm basically just trying to position my stand to where the deer are going to walk by it on the north side, on the upwind side. And, you know, I've, I've even take like, now I kind of have a, I've been doing it long enough where I kind of have a mental picture in my head of my stands and what wins. But the first year I really put this into practice, like after I made that big aha moment with that, uh, access route, uh, I actually made a list that year. I, I wrote down all my stands and I looked at my access routes and I looked at where I thought deer were coming from. And I actually made a list like on south winds, I can hunt this stand, this stand, and this stand. On north winds, I can hunt this stand, this stand, this stand. If we happen to have a west wind, like this stand will work, this stand will work. And uh, like I took it to that extreme. And I still to this day, like I said, I don't actually make a physical list now. But in my head, I know this stand I can only hunt on these winds, so on and so forth. And like I said, I, I almost choose my access before I choose my stand location because that has everything to do with it. Like your ground scent can be a killer, a killer for you, not the buck. Unfortunately, it's a lifesaver for the buck. Um, but it, and especially if you have a limited number of stands, you know, if you only have two or three stands, let's say you take a vacation day and you got a three day weekend and you have two stands uh, you know, more than likely you're going to have your favorite stand. You're probably going to hunt it more than the other. So let's say you get a, a morning hunt and an evening hunt. So you get six hunts in three days. Let's say you hunt one stand four times in six days. That means you're walking in and then walking out. So you now have basically eight trips to that stand or in or out of that stand. That is a lot of ground scent and that can drastically change deer movement in and around that stand. And so you really got to have your access dialed. Uh, you know, creeks are a great thing. And even if you don't have, even if you can't walk in the creek, walking on the opposite side of the creek, um, you know, not that deer don't cross, obviously they cross creeks so they wouldn't get anywhere, but most likely they're going to have one side or the other that they prefer. And so, you know, if you can stay on the south side and then cross to the north side or vice versa, um, you know, fences, you know, fences can control deer. Maybe you can walk on the outside of the fence and then climb the fence to get into your stand. Anything you can do to put that in your favor, you know, wide open fields, even, uh, wide open fields can be great for stand access because more than likely, uh, deer and especially that mature buck are not going to be in that wide open field in the, in daylight. 
And so, you know, you can get in there early or whatever you need to do, but you can walk across that wide open field and know that a deer is probably not going to come across your scent trail. And so, yeah, I can't hammer this enough. Access trails is like been one of my, one of the biggest things I've learned in the whitetail woods. And one of the things I stress about the most nowadays when I hunt, um, even when I've, you know, some of the hunting I've done on public land, uh, I would almost say it's even more important then, which is difficult because you can't control a lot of the stuff on public land. You can't control where other people have been. Um, but I would also say deer are, uh, less comfortable with that human intrusion because it happens more and they have more people hunting them. And so I would almost say it's even more important on public land. But, um, uh, but yeah, if you're, if you have a stance, like a permanent stance site that you plan on hunting multiple times, especially, especially if it's a feeder, you know, feeders are tough. Like I, I'm trying harder and harder and kind of more and more getting away from feeders the more that I hunt now. Not because I don't think they can be effective, but you just, you leave so much scent and deer come into those setups so, or with so much caution. And so, yeah, if you're hunting, if like, if you have a permanent stand over a feeder, you really, really got to limit yourself to how much you hunt that and how careful you are with access. And really, like, that's, I try really, really hard to make it to where, like, I know the deer are going to come from this direction and I can come from the opposite direction. You know, whether that's a field edge, whether that's using a creek as a barrier, you know, something like you really, really got to plan your access out when you're picking your stand site. I hope you guys learned something from all this, all my mistakes over the years. I got plenty more I could go over, but that's going to do it for time on this one. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Like I said, I hope you guys can learn from my mistakes and maybe keep you from doing some of your own. If you guys have some mistakes that you've made that you learned from, I would love to hear about them. Uh, hit me up on Facebook or Instagram, Oklahoma Outdoor Podcast. And uh, yeah, I just love hearing from you guys. And I'm sure you guys have learned a lot over the years. And so hit me up on those and let me know. Uh, I'd love to interact with you guys. Uh, thank you guys for listening to the show once again. I've had a great time. Like I said, I'm going to start working on some video content, hopefully coming up soon. I hope you guys are staying dry and staying afloat with all this rain we've had. And that is going to do it for this episode. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. You guys stay classy out there, and I will catch you guys next week. <laughs>